and welcome to episode 72 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Today we will be talking about a four-part series of the podcast Geologians entitled Feminism is Poisoned. But before we get started, let's start with some introductions of today's panel. My name is Kimberly Feldman and I will be our moderator today. And I currently live in Baltimore, Maryland with my husband who is a pastor at a local church and my two kids. I was a high school English teacher for 10 years and now I am a PhD student and I work with future teachers at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And I'm working on my dissertation for language, literacy and culture. Victoria. Thanks, Kim. Uh Hi everyone, I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer, uh, I'm one of the founders of the Christian Feminist Podcast, and I have a PhD in Literature and Gender Studies from Florida State University. I currently live in Minnesota with my husband Michael of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and I work in audience development at Public Radio International, which is really hard for me not to say in the... Uh, in the tagline voice if you are a listener to our programs. Thanks. Blake? (laughs) Hi, I'm Blake Miller. Uh, I got a master's degree in divinity from Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. I currently live with my wife in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am a hospital chaplain. Thanks. Uh, I want to start by giving us a brief, uh, some background information about the podcast Geologians. It began in October of last year, 2016, and is hosted by Joy Temby and Summer Yeager. It's part of the Apologia Radio Network. Uh, It's now known as Apologia Studios, which is a ministry based out of a church in Arizona that offers widely viewed YouTube videos, popular podcasts, and even started a new late night comedy show that reportedly stars a hipster pastor that mocks sin and makes Christian entertainment not suck. Uh, the, some of the credentials of the two hosts, according to their webpage, Joy Temby has worked with Apologia Radio since the, its inception, and Summer Yeager, whose maiden name is White, is the daughter of Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries. The website states that we exist to fill a void many women in the Reformed camp feel. Culture, art, our attitudes, our relationships, and the whole of our lives need to be viewed through a comprehensive Christian worldview. We hope to help put those lenses on while dissecting these issues, as well as provide a safe space for Calvinists to feel like they can laugh again. We hope to push back on the squishy postmodern view of women that has infiltrated the church. We hope to be the antidote to the feministy presuppositional poison that so many are unaware they hold to. The podcast has garnered half a million downloads and over 300 largely favorable reviews on iTunes. However, their Facebook page has gotten a bit of, uh, to be a bit of a battleground and even made headlines on a few conservative Christian news sites for being blocked by Facebook, which raised some interesting questions about Facebook censorship of religious websites, but they have since been unblocked. The four-part Uh, series, Feminism is Poison, dropped in January in the weeks leading up to and following the Women's March. And uh, as we get started, um, I want to talk a little bit about our experiences in our knowing section of the podcast, um, our experiences of listening to this podcast, and any experiences that you've had with resistance to feminism in your Christian communities. Victoria, can you start? Sure. Um, Well, I decided to start this podcast with a lot of my really smart, wonderful uh, grad school friends because of getting that kind of resistance. Um, Mostly not 
in the Christian community, um, it happened the other way. It was resistance I was getting to my Christianity from people who knew I was a feminist. Um, people in grad school who said, like, how can you be a feminist and also hold to that theology? Um, and I knew that I could, and I knew that other intelligent, um, empowered, theologically grounded women that I was friends with sort of embodied those nuances. Uh, and so I thought maybe there's, maybe there's a place for this. Um, and we do, I mean, we've been doing this show for almost four years now. Um, all total with a, a rotating panel of, of wonderful folks and uh, we get hate mail that you guys mostly don't see but that I see um, from from both sides of the aisle as it were we get um, hate mail from feminists who say we're too conservative we get hate mail from Christians who say that our theology is watered down um, but that is not what I try to pay attention to I try to pay attention to the mail that I mostly do pass on to the rest of the panel that's from um, some men but mostly women who say um, this podcast has given me community um, a space that I didn't think existed to embody those nuances and to think about questions of gender and gender in the church um, to talk about fun things too um, to just kind of explore the way we live our lives in these intersections and um, you know, I, I think as long as we keep getting those messages, too, of, of people encouraging us and, and thanking us for opening up a space, that I'm going to care less about the other stuff. But I, I definitely did start this podcast as a project because um, I felt like those intersections were being um, glossed over from both sides. So that's sort of my experience. And I am very grateful that you started the podcast because uh, being a Christian and moving into the academic world, working on my PhD, uh, I I was looking for that. And that's how I came across your podcast. I needed to know that I wasn't crazy uh, for identifying as both Christian and feminist. And I, ex I experienced some of the same um, resistance um, from both camps that you've described. Blake? Uh, yeah, in Interestingly enough, in my own personal history, uh, the biggest opponent uh, I've dealt with it to feminism has been me, uh, because I've always been interested in gender studies and just the question of what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What are the essential differences between the two of them? And, and what are the reconciliations that are available going forward from that and all the other questions you could ask? Um, I've always been interested in those kinds of things, but I, uh, for a long time in my life, rejected the idea of calling myself a feminist because I didn't like what I heard certain feminists saying and, and what basically other feminists told me, um, not to my face, of course, but through the books they wrote and the websites they posted on that I wasn't allowed to be a Christian feminist. Um, and I remember a conversation actually I had while I was in grad school getting my divinity degree. I was talking to a professor and I said, I, I just, I can't call myself a feminist. I can't call myself the same thing that, I don't know, Andrea Dworkin calls herself because she says that women have been so subjugated they deserve their own Israel. And I just don't believe in that. I can't, I, you know, it's so strange and terrible to me to think that. And he just said, you know, when somebody says something like that, I just have to wonder what happened to them or what they've experienced to make them think that that's the right idea. And then he went ahead and humanized you know, my quote unquote enemy for me. And before long, I came to the belief that I don't have to agree with everything every feminist says in order to be a feminist myself. Uh, and I became what I would call my own kind of feminist. And from there on, mostly the arguments I've gotten have been silenced just because the people I talk to aren't as interested in it as me, but uh, it was interesting to kind of come to that little revelation, I think, myself, and uh, find my own way of, of interfacing with feminism and Christianity. I'm not sure you'd find a feminist uh, around today for whom Andrea Dworkin is not problematic in one way or another. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> uh, I mean, we should, we should uh, do a show about her. Uh, one of these days, particularly about her um, 90s unlikely friendship with the moral majority, which I think might be interesting for us to explore. But yeah, if, if you have a problem with that, you're not alone. I appreciate it. Great. So um, 
I want to talk a little bit about why I wanted to do this particular episode. Um, a, about a year ago, my husband told me that he had heard about a podcast for women by women uh, that was from a reform perspective, that it was uh, about theology, and he wanted me to check it out. He couldn't remember the name. And so I did a search, and this is the one that was top on iTunes, which means it was the most popular um, when you search for um women theology or something like that. And so uh, I started listening to it and the first two episodes just didn't sit well with me that I listened to and I wasn't going to do it, listen to anymore. I thought about unsubscribing, but then they started the series Feminism is Poison. And uh, I was already a panelist on this show and um, I was I wanted to see, you know, what were their arguments? What why did they have this this title feminism is poison? What were they going to say? So I started listening, but I couldn't even get through the second episode before I was emailing Victoria that we had to do an episode on this. And I think part of the reason why I needed to do an episode on um this series was because uh, having academic discussions around things somehow helps me to cope, um helps me to process things and uh so I wanted to kind of have this sort of academic discussion about what these women had to say. And I wanted to figure out why the this, this show upset me so much. Um, I, If it was cognitive dissonance because, you know, maybe they were challenging my worldview, then that's something I wanted to push through and deal with. Um, my whole first two years of my PhD program with each new reading that I read, I experienced cognitive dissonance and had to kind of, you know, go back to scripture and go back to these readings and try to figure out, okay, what's truth, what's cultural, and how can this help me to understand the world? Um, but I figured out that that wasn't the problem with the show. That wasn't what I was experiencing. Um, and it wasn't even anger at the reductive or illogical arguments that the women were making, but it was more the tone. Um, at the risk of being cutesy and alliterative, I, f I found the tone of the show to be very dismissive, derisive, and divisive. Um, that they they weren't modeling the grace and humility that I would expect Christians to have towards people with different perspectives. Um, you know, in our culture today, we have such a polarized culture. We have um, people that aren't willing to listen to what the other side has to say. And um, I feel like as Christians, we have to do better. Um, so that that was part of the challenge. Um, and it made me also question things about um, the role of podcasts in the public sphere. Um, if you think about the public sphere as a space where people can engage in dialogue around issues to, to understand them and to come to agreements about them. In some ways, podcasts give voice to people, which is really, really awesome. Um, these are women from a conservative, complementarian, reformed perspective who are finding their voices and getting their ideas out there and heard, which is fantastic. Absolutely um, fantastic. Yes. Fully, right. fully endorse that that exists. Right. But then to what extent are we furthering the polarization? Because probably the people who are listening to their podcast and the people who are listening to ours are not the same people that, you know, they, there's more speaking to people who already agree with them rather than actually trying to um, get their ideas across to people who might not agree with them. Um, so I wanted to just, you know, did you guys have any similar experiences of listening to this podcast? And <laughs> what were your thoughts about it? I was challenged uh, by how easily and quickly and often they went back to this idea of if you have a biblical worldview, you don't need uh, feminism. And if you, you know, if, if you just do Christianity well, it seemed like they wanted to say um, none of this means anything or makes any difference. And of course, like half of the things that they that they say feminists argue for, you wouldn't even be arguing for because they would be unchristian. And so I, I had to ask myself, you know, have I sort of stepped too far into the public square, so to speak, and and tried to interface with some stuff that perhaps I just, you know, as a Christian might just say, well, that's not for me. That's not something that I feel the need to redeem. It's not something that I need to, to feel uh you know, could be useful for me to to work with, and maybe I just need to let let that alone. Uh, and so that was that was worth um, asking myself through through going through these uh, podcasts. I think that's really important, um, Blake. 
that was one of the things in my second listening that was really important to me was to listen for where I could find common ground and where I could agree with them um, and and to to think about those things and to allow myself to be challenged by what they have to say. And they and I agree that the, that you're right that if if we lived up to the ideals for the respect and care for all of humanity that are in the Bible, we wouldn't need feminism, but because we live in a fallen world where that's not happening even in churches, um, I feel like that's where feminism can be a tool to help us to to see that. That's a really great point. When when even churches aren't doing everything in terms of, you know, men, women relations and inequality, uh, then maybe you need feminism to come in. Uh, just as some sort of tool to help remind us and and show us what we really are supposed to be about. Yeah, I I think that I I agree with everything you've said, Um, especially the part where feminism is a tool among other tools to to kind of investigate our our lives and and how we live them together. Um, I know we'll, we'll talk more about the sort of where we think the failure of the the church comes in later probably when we discuss their fourth episode but i i just want to say it was important to me to go through and try to find um places of agreement here because as uh, as you said kim my biggest issue with this podcast series was its tone um it's uh sort of literal and figurative continued assertions that someone like me does not and cannot exist um i I really felt uh really felt erased by the discussions that they were having and so it's very important to me in this discussion that we're having to not do that to say there is common ground here um and and we should talk about it absolutely uh i Victoria, your uh, episode on Truth Table is now one of my favorite episodes that Christian Feminist Podcast has done, uh, and I really appreciated that you talked about the the importance of listening. Um, and you know, part of the whole problem in our culture with the red states and blue states is that you know there is not there there were not listening across difference, um, and so I it was important to me to actually listen to what these women had to say and to to model uh, the kinds of grace and humility that I would like to see in public discourse. So we're going to go ahead and uh, discuss the little bit from each episode. So Victoria, can you start us off by talking about uh, your thoughts on episode one and two? Sure, um, I. I just said I want to start focusing on the things that I agree with. Um, There wasn't a lot I agreed with in the first episode, though there was more in the second episode. So before I get into the first episode itself, I do want to say I think that Joy and Summer have a great rapport with each other. There were were moments um, in the episode that felt like recording one of our episodes to me. They clearly like and respect um, each other a lot. Um, they also have a, a pretty good sense of humor, I think, about themselves and the things that they talk about. Um, their intro music and the sort of jokey, like, Campbell Soup commercial thing um, that they do, which struck me as very Betty Friedan influenced, but we'll get there in a second. Um, all of that, to me, was was a very humanizing influence and made me think like as much as I do disagree with the way they're going about this these are people who ultimately I think have their hearts in the right place so I I do want to I do want to mention that first that said um, my biggest concern and I, I it was the strongest for me in in the first first wave episode is um how much this series waters down and glosses over not just feminist history, which is slightly more understandable because um, I I think that they don't know as much um, feminist history as maybe they do theology or Christian history. Um, I think it glosses over Christian history a little bit too. Um, so they, they talk about the suffragists of the first wave and how their goal is to get women the vote. They mention that they were also temperance fighters um, and abolitionists, but they don't really delve terribly deeply uh, into 
where the political connections between those three movements come from. Um, particularly, there's a section where both women, to varying degrees, uh, endorse the one family, one vote movement in which um, a husband votes on behalf of his family and, and women don't um, participate in the political system. Um, and and they seem to assume that this should have been fine for the first wave, um, when in fact the reason there's such a deep connection between the suffrage movement and the temperance movement um, and Christians, uh, organizations like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, which is still around, um, exist because there are so many saloons in towns in the late 19th, early 20th century that men are not doing their duty by their families. Not all men, of course, but lots of men um, are committing adultery and uh, getting caught up in issues of drunkenness and not uh, respecting their wives and children. So the idea of one family, one vote assumes, you know, an upstanding, respectful husband or patriarch. Um, I've been reading a book that eventually I'm going to interview its author for uh, our interview show, Christian Humanist Profiles. It's um, A New Gospel for Women, Catherine Bushnell and the Challenge of Christian Feminism by Kristen Dumez. And uh, it's about Catherine Bushnell, who was a missionary in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, she gets involved in the Women's Christian Temperance Union and also um, an anti-prostitution uh, missionary ministry that tours the world, but she is sort of trying to figure out uh, the place of women in the church. But something that is present in that Dubez book that wasn't present um, in these podcasts to me was sort of figuring out why those intersections um, existed. They also mention um, the most famous first waivers that exist. Uh, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they note their deep friendship. Um, they also mention differences between uh, Stanton's uh, sort of stay-at-home career as a wife and mother and Anthony's position on the career circuit. Uh, I've always been really interested in that friendship because of the kind of give and take that it seems to embody. One of them does womanhood one way and another one does womanhood another way. And yet, um, if you read their letters, they love each other very much. They respect, though, though they do get in disagreements, um, they respect each other. Um, they try to understand where the other person is coming from. Um, uh, Summer and Joy don't really mention the depth of this relationship. They also don't really talk about, um, and I, th I thought this was the, the biggest sort of informational um, shortcoming, I think, of the, the first wave episode, is that they don't talk about Stanton's Christianity at all. Uh, she spends most of her adult life really struggling with the role of the women in the Christian church, um, and eventually authors a book called The Woman's Bible, which is most people say the the first real piece of feminist biblical hermeneutics um, which we will be doing an episode on at some point in the spring semester uh, <laughs> preparing for this episode finally convinced me um, I bought a copy of the woman's Bible and have started reading it uh, so I, I think we should we should dig into that because there's something there to dig into um, one more thing I would like to mention before I leave the first wave episode and give you guys a chance to respond to my long-winded uh, summary here. They, um, I was actually listening to the end of the first wave episode and the beginning of the second wave episode um, on November 14th, a little over a week ago, um, which happened to be the 100th anniversary of the Occoquan Night of Terror in 1917 where a lot of first waivers, um, Alice Paul and some other members um, of the National American Women's Suffrage Association were jailed and, uh, and beaten, and they participated in a hunger strike at the Occoquan Workhouse um, as protest for their unfair arrest. 
So Summer and Joy mention this, and then they kind of joke about it and compare what happens at Akaquan to a child refusing to eat his dinner, um, which I just found really rude and disrespectful. Um, and oh then, my goodness, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And then, they right. go, and then they go on to say, uh, Christians don't do hunger strikes, which just floored me. <laughs> Um, what about Dorothy Day? What about Diedrich Bonhoeffer? What about Martin Luther King Jr.? Uh, I... What about Daniel going on his fast? You know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a fantastic point that uh, I did not think of to include, but yeah, sure. Um, I googled the phrase Christian hunger strike in preparation for this episode and got um, over a page of results just from the past year of newspaper articles, though they were mostly in Africa and the Middle East. So I think all of those things add up to me to a, a pretty narrow view of what Christianity is. Like, if you, if what you mean by Christians don't do hunger strikes is white Protestants in the 21st century United States don't do hunger strikes, then perhaps that's true. But if that is true, I'm a little worried about the narrowness of, of the Christianity in that in that rubric. So that's the those are, are reasons why I, I had a lot of trouble with the with the first wave um episode. As I said, I found more to agree with in the second wave episode, but before I move on to that, do you guys have, have anything to say about the first wave one? I just uh, share your shock over a couple of those main points. The idea of of just saying Christians don't do hunger strikes and almost saying that, you know, like we're Christians, we don't need to protest. It almost, I, mean, I don't know how else to take it. And, you know, what part of Christianity, what era of Christian history isn't marked by Christians protesting, you know, um, and and resisting and allowing their own suffering to be a means by which change is championed and sometimes affected. And if I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say uh, the crucifixion is a pretty seminal act of protest and that it had pretty profound uh, changes on the way the world worked and that you know, Christians the world over have joined in the suffering of those less fortunate or experienced suffering for their own sake uh, in order to increase the the peace in the world, the equality in the world, the rights in the world. It, it just it really didn't make any sense to me. And it's one of those things where it, it comes from so far out of left field, you almost don't know how to react to it and how to, you know, gainsay it because you would have never expected somebody would say something that garish yeah and i think one of the my biggest one of the biggest questions raised for me from this episode too was right at the beginning when they said that feminism is objective not subjective it can't mean whatever you want it to mean um which you know raises all kinds of questions about the meaning of words and semiotics uh, the idea that you know words are kind of arbitrary and that and the ch the meaning of words changes over time that's that's just the reality and uh you know there christianity you can say that that is grounded on an objective truth um but what people mean when they say that they're christian that's can be very very different from one person to the next and I feel the same way about feminist, um, that that can mean something very, very different from one person to the next. And so I kind of disagreed because that, that was where they kind of started from. Like, you can't be a feminist because that has an objective meaning and it's antithetical to the what the Bible says. And uh, that just didn't ring true for me and my understanding of language itself. I mean, I think something that we say on this show a lot is that just the the idea that there is a monolithic feminism is is false like there are there are many feminisms and we we as a panel don't agree with all of them um if you look at the individuals on this panel my feminism is different than yours is different from Katie's is different from Marie's and Nora's and Carla's like we we all embody this differently um 
I'll put I'll put a, a link to our Why Christian Feminist, um, our sort of one-page manifesto. I'll link that in the show notes too, because we we sort of break down what that means to us and and why we chose um, the tagline for the show that we did in essentials unity in non-essentials liberty and in all things love um for me my christianity is an essential and my feminism is a non-essential um though it is important to me right and in my history being a feminist you know one of my issues was the feminists don't have their own version of the Bible. You know, if you want to argue with a Christian or you want to construct your own idea of what Christianity is, you usually have to go through the Bible and you have to go through those 66 books and all the passages that we don't love that are in there sometimes. But my issue was, you know, what am I really saying when I call myself a feminist? Because there doesn't seem to be some sort of bedrock that all feminists agree on or even most. And for them to say it's objective seems that they haven't really thought about, you know, the fact that there is that absence of some sort of solidifying text or manifesto or anything else like that. Yeah. But then they say, if you just say you're a feminist because you believe in gender equality, that that's wrong. So like they're taking the broadest objective that I've ever heard feminists use and saying that it's wrong. Right, because they say that uh, because feminism doesn't derive its purpose from biblical truth, it's invalidated. Um, and I, I don't know if I agree with that logic. Well, then we're, we're starting to get tautological, right? We're, we're starting to get to a, a tautological place because feminism doesn't feminism isn't good because it doesn't derive from biblical truth and also Christian feminism can't exist because feminism doesn't derive from biblical truth even if Christian feminism tries to right and there's a whole like that that's a whole slippery slope if we're starting to say that anything that doesn't directly have its roots in the Bible is somehow antithetical to the Bible Right, but we should uh, we should probably keep moving here. Um, a- as I said, I found more things to agree with in the second wave episode. Um, they talk, as maybe can be expected, a lot about abortion um, in their episode. On the second wave, um, they talk about the sort of broadening of sexual norms being objectionable from a Christian point of view. I agree with that. Um, but even here, there wasn't a lot of exploration of complexity. They didn't mention, for example, feminists for life. Um, I, I know because that nonprofit exists, there are a lot of feminists who um, are pro-life who believe very strongly that um, that abortion is murder. Um, but they don't really come into the discussion here. Uh, one thing that I, probably the thing that I agreed with most strongly um, in all of their discussion is the basis on which they critique the feminine mystique. Um, they talk about Friedan's argument ultimately ending an idolatry of the self. Um, I agree with that. I, I do think that the feminine mystique has a lot of truth that I do come back to. Um, they They mentioned, I think, reading it once and then um eventually they say women christian women should not should avoid reading this book um i do not agree with that part i've probably read the feminine mystique 10 or 12 times cover to cover um i've taught it several times i've taught it to both christian and non-christian women i think it has a lot of value particularly in its critique of the intersections of patriarch patriarchy and capitalism um this idea that um, in the 50s and 60s, we get all these appliances that make housework better, um, but what actually happens is that more housework pops up to fill the time, and eventually you get convinced that the whole of your worth as a woman is this um, 
work that you're doing in the home when Ferdan describes the problem that has no name. She talks about women making the beds, shopping for groceries, mashing slipcover material, eating peanut butter sandwiches with their children, chauffeuring Cub Scouts and brownies, and then laying in bed at night next to their husbands wondering, is this all there is? Um, and, and feeling a, a kind of emptiness about that. Um, I do think that that emptiness is a product of the intersecting forces of patriarchy and capitalism convincing women that they are worth less than they are. I do not think the answer to that problem um, is finding your worth entirely in your individual self, as Friedan says. Obviously, as a Christian, I can't think that. That's not where my worth comes from. My worth comes from being the imago dei and being created in the image of God. So... I do, um, I do think that they're right about that, and that that is a, a sort of should should be a sticking point for Christian women. Um, but I cannot endorse just not reading it as they do, um, unless you are not an adult who is strongly grounded in the faith. If you are not those things, you need to take milk before you take meat, as the Bible instructs. If you are an adult grounded in the faith, you should be able to digest things with which you disagree, as we are trying to do here. You should take the good, leave the bad, and exercise discernment. Which is ultimately, I think, my disagreement with their podcast. I don't think they try to do that. I don't think they look for complexity. I don't think they try to exercise discernment as much as they try to shut down things with which they disagree um, and flatten out complexity and move on from there. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, and on the note of, you know, that there were some things in there that I agree with, um, I they mentioned in one of these in episode two that feminism can be idolatry of men that of wanting the roles of men and uh i i agree with that i agree that you know the purpose of feminism isn't for women to be men or to be like men or to have everything and do everything that they do um i don't think men should be our standard uh and then they also talked about the problem like you said of women finding their identity or worth in housework kids and work etc like I agree with that. And I, you know, I'm hearing what they're saying and I'm like, well, that that's kind of a feminist perspective. And I, <laughs> can't you see, hear that, that that's, that it's so similar. Um, and I, I get their point that Chris, you know, that Christianity is enough that you don't need feminism also, that that's their point. But I, um, I just think that, uh, they, they need to do that same hard work, like you said, of seeing where there's common ground and uh, being willing to listen. Uh, I agree. It, it It's strange to me um, to hear that they would just say you're not capable of, of listening. To I mean, to me, it just kind of sounds like the emperor's new clothes almost. If, if you if you read this book, you'll agree with it too much, so you better not read it. Um, and I've, you know, even in my own life, have gone through periods where I've asked myself, am I contending too much with the world? Am I, am I trying to give the world's arguments too much time in my mind and in my life? Um, but if nothing else, we have to know what the people around us are believing if we want to contend with them, if we want to advocate for them and if we want to um, be Christ to them. Uh, also, on another hand, I was really kind of surprised to hear them say that, this, to hear them sort of basically say, this is worldly, don't touch it, when at the same time as I'm listening, they have pop songs softly playing in the background. And one of them that I distinctly remember was Miley Cyrus's We Can't Stop, where she talks about taking drugs in the chorus. And I just thought, I was, I'm really surprised that you would say, don't read this, you know, important book of, of criticism and history, you know, because it might warp your mind. But we can let you have this subliminal message of Miles Cyrus taking um, drugs in the background. It, would, it seemed kind of, uh, you know, talking out of both sides of one's mouth. I was a little confused about how much pop music was playing in the background, too, Um I didn't even think to be as philosophical about it as you were. I was just kind of like, wait, is it supposed to be doing that the whole time? But I'm glad that you were smart about it. I think it picked up as the uh, the three episodes went on more and more. 
All right, Blake, would you like to talk about episode three? I will give it my best shot. Um, they say in episode three that the third wave is too all over the place and that it's pretty vile. And they also say uh, that feminism is not about equal rights. That's not what it's become is the the phrase they use. And so it's difficult for me to talk about episode three because they're pretty all over the place when they when they talk about it. Um, I, I find myself. Uh, feeling their pain, I guess you could say, in this episode, because the third wave has feminism sort of branching out into all these different um, these different streams. And, and they say a lot of things that I, especially as a Christian, disagree with. Um, at, but I think that it's also important to note that a lot of the political groundwork that feminism was based on for the first 50, 60 years of its existence has been mostly accomplished, you know, so women have the right to vote and the the people who called themselves feminists and advocated for women to have the right to get abortions have accomplished that. So feminism would naturally become more of a sort of uh, literary theory or, or critique of the culture beyond just sort of a political movement to advocate for women's rights as women got more and more rights. So uh, they talk a lot about um, a feminist clothing store they found online, and they bemoan the fact that a lot of the uh, T-shirts had messages that disparaged men and suggested that women are the ones who really ru ruled the world. They touch very briefly on um, marginalized and oppressed groups and how feminism grew to try and seek justice for these groups and call itself intersectional. They said that <laughs> they said that the African-American women started advocating for safe spaces um, and that this was co-opted by college campuses. And now uh, this new you know, font of political correctness is coming and corrupting academia, which, of course, they seem to believe has been corrupt for quite some time. Uh, they talk about the myth. They say that one in four women will be raped in college, that statistic. Um, and say that it's sort of a conspiracy that feminists are promulgating at this point. <clears throat> they spend a little bit of time talking about how uh, feminism and Christianity have started to commingle in the third wave, but they say that no feminist website they've visited actually has a biblical worldview. And they say it's no surprise because feminism doesn't take its idea of value for women from a place where women can actually be valued, which I find to be more of that tautology that we've talked about. Like if you've already decided that the only true way of you know thinking about the world is Christianity, then of, of course any any political ideology or anything else, criticism um, that you have that doesn't contend with that must be wrong. And it seems like they're sort of attacking non-Christian ideas just for being non-Christian. Uh, let's see. They talk about the wage gap and the myth, they say, that, that it's 73 cents to the dollar and how the statistics are highly skewed and about the women's march in january that apparently pro-life marchers were not invited to simply because uh they were christian um they even <laughs> one of the things that struck me a lot was that they uh leaned on the work of camille paglia who they described as a lesbian atheist uh who they thought um advocated against some of the streams of feminism that they disliked. But they said, I know a lot of Christians will be mad that we even brought her up because she's not a Christian, which I thought was sort of an interesting tell that anything that isn't Christian to them, uh, any ideas that uh, aren't coming based from a Christian viewpoint must be wrong, ipso facto. So, yeah, I, I wish I could sort of summarize and collate it all, but I, I don't know how to. Um, but, yeah, they, they really kind of went all over the place and, and just sort of cherry-picked arguments and ideas to bash. And in many ways, I could understand it because there's a lot of third-wave feminism that I disagree with, but it, it seemed like um, sort of a self, you know, it fun for them and not serious work on their part. I, I think you did a, a pretty good job hitting the high points. Uh, can, can we, 
can we do some work here and 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 break some of this down um oh please do because yeah. as you said i i i do i agree with a lot of what they said um the what they said about intersectionality um and safe spaces starting with black women and and then being co-opted by white feminists is absolutely a hundred percent historically true um though i would add that um and and something that we have talked about on this show in in our summary episodes um of, of the three waves of feminist history is that that kind of racial erasure um has existed since the beginning of the movement it was true in the first wave and true in the second wave um we mentioned ida b wells barnett in the first wave and Polly murray in the second and how those african-american women who did an incredible amount of work aren't as historically known um just for simply racist reasons um so those things are true it's something deep in the roots of the movement it's something that we um are we on this podcast are upset about um and and are trying to do um better with ourselves um i that that rape statistic um is is that a statistic that you guys have heard the yes. one in, the mm-hmm. one in four thing because one I, in four or one in five yeah right i always heard it as raped or assaulted which i think makes a difference that's what i've heard as well right um because what they go on to say about like um that that uh they don't use the phrase epistemic violence though they're borrowing from its tradition um that epistemic violence is not rape that um catcalling is not rape um and then they have some disparaging things to say about uh the term rape culture um i mean those things are those things are true it's not they're not all the same as rape but i think what the idea of rape culture is trying to put across is that these are all sort of planets in the same universe not that they're the same thing but that their existence stems from a similar patriarchal ideology or that the uh the environment that doesn't take one of them very seriously will find it harder to take any of the others as seriously as they ought to be taken even as seriously as they themselves say they want to take it absolutely yeah and i also think it's inconsistent with their view of what men should be and what they should be doing from a biblical perspective, uh, holding men to that standard of respect for women uh, is, uh, I I don't understand why they aren't holding men to that standard. That is interesting because it seems a lot of times they want to say all men should do what, you know, the Bible says men should do, which, you know, if we want to say all men should be Christians, and I could probably say that, um, that makes sense. But you're right, there does seem to be a sense of lack of when they want to press a specific, you know, passage or verse or injunction down and when they don't. Yeah. I do want to move on to episode four so that we have time to talk about it because it's specifically uh, an episode about feminism and the church and what they describe as the infiltration of feminism into the church. Before we do that, can we talk about the wage gap for just a minute? Oh, I was going to talk about that because they bring it up again in episode four. Oh, they bring it up again. Okay. Well, cool. I will let you do your thing. I will. So, um... In this episode, one of the things that um, I, I just want to point out that kind of threads throughout the episode is the way that um, that they use othering as an approach to distance um, and kind of minimalize uh, Christian feminists. They describe Christian feminists at various points as being reductive, vapid, angry, fussy, discontent, covetous, wanting what men have, having a victim mentality, everyone is out to get us, and prideful, thinking everything is about us. Um, and I, I just always notice when people are using that kind of discursive tactic uh, in making their arguments, because I think it's, um, it's something that uh, isn't a solid way of arguing for a particular point. Uh, One quote in particular from Summer that gave me pause, she says, I don't want to say that every Christian feminist is someone who has nothing to say and is vapid, but I would say a lot of people who hold that hold that title are not serious scholars worth listening to, Uh, you know, which is 
for us at the Christian Feminist Podcast, something for us to wrestle with is, is that perception of uh, Christian feminists. Joy is a little bit more diplomatic. She says, uh, we're also not saying that all Christian feminists would call themselves that for the same reason. So at least she acknowledges that uh, it's not a monolithic group. Um, something that I thought was interesting in, in their sort of there aren't a lot of scholarly Christian feminists section um, was that they mention um, two books and authors specifically Sarah Bessie's Jesus Feminist and Rachel Held Evans' Year of Biblical Womanhood, um, both of which we did episodes on early in the tenure of this show and both of which we had some positive but kind of a lot of negative things to say about so I I just I found that interesting definitely and I think the other tactic that they used that I found troubling was kind of the straw man argument where they kind of set up like this is what a Christian feminist is and what they set up is not um does not accurately describe my understanding of Christian feminism but they set up what that is and then tear it apart and uh, what they set up, I just have some problems with it. Uh, predominantly, they suggest that Christian feminists are critiquing scripture, that their problem um, isn't with with social constructions of gender, but is with scripture itself. And um, that so they seem to kind of have this misunderstanding of this feminist reading of scripture that um, that the argument of Christian feminists is against God's roles for women or God's design for men and women. or um, And so they go to specific passages. So this time they do go into some scripture and they say, if you're reading it this way, then you are bringing a cultural lens, a bias lens to scripture, and you need to deal with that. And I would agree with them. I would say that, you know, we shouldn't, we, that we shouldn't be you know, reading things through that cultural lens that we should be looking at cultural through a scriptural lens. And um, so I so I had some trouble with that being how they were defining Christian feminists, uh, because I think that, you know, Christian feminists aren't really critiquing God or scripture so much as critiquing the way that church has the church and society has failed to live up to those biblical ideals for respecting and valuing women. Um, they also challenge the idea that men are evil. They say, look around you. Do you really see men in your church who are evil? And and I would agree. You know, when I look around at the men in my church, they are not evil. They're not out to get women. And I look at the men in my workplace and they're not evil and they're not out to get women. But I do see how, you know, the sin of patriarchy and the vestiges of patriarchy are still existing in society and in the workplace and in the church. And, um, and that's, you know, it's not that I think men are out to get me. It's that I see these structures that are in place that are making it difficult for women to use their gifts and to be in leadership roles. Um, so, so I, again, that was that kind of a straw man argument. Um, they point out that men are sinful and women are sinful and feminism can never be the answer to sin. And of course, <laughs> I don't think that there <laughs> is any Christian feminist who thinks that feminism is the answer to sin. Um, and so uh, I, I think um, that that's, that's something that we can agree with. But again, they're setting that up as like, look at us tear down Christian feminists. And I'm like, no, that's not what Christian yeah, feminists believe. No Christian feminist would say that. <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, and then there's the critique of the wage gap. They spend a little more time talking about that um, and how women, you know, it's not a real thing because women choose lower wage jobs, which is true. But uh the question is why are feminized professions lower wage? Why don't teachers get paid more? And why don't nurses get paid more when those fields are just as important and inquire, are just as intellectually demanding as male dominated professions? Um, and if you look at the history of teaching and of nursing and um, like teaching in particular, it they started recruiting women because they could pay them less and that it was easier for them to, to to fund the local schools by having women teachers. Um, so it, it's grounded in 
um, this devaluing of women and women's work. Um, the other questions of why do we not offer adequate and affordable daycare for all children and why don't we have work schedules more conducive to family life? Like those are all wrapped up in the wage gap. Um, yes, absolutely. They are. It's, it's not that was just kind of dismissive. Yeah, it's not just that 78 cents on the dollar statistic, which I agree with him, is misrepresentative and sloppily reported on often. Um, I agree with that. But these issues that you're talking about, um, the pink, pink collar jobs and the pink ghetto and the idea, you know, the difference between the glass ceiling where women don't... Um, women don't advance as quickly in male-dominated jobs and the glass elevator if you have a male nurse or a male teacher um, he is studies show promoted quickly and at a higher rate when he is in a female dominated profession like those are the issues that contribute to the wage gap that we should be talking about when we talk about the wage gap and not just reducing it to this admittedly faulty statistic that doesn't take all of those things into account yes and similarly with their discussion, dare I get into it, of the difference between men and women's IQ um, was an extremely reductive and simplistic um, analysis of the, the difference between men and women and IQ. Um, first of all, the whole understanding of how we measure intelligence and the different types of intelligence and the validity and reliability of those different measures, but also um, in, in analyzing the statistics themselves um, when you control for things like socioeconomics and level of education, um, yet that usually evens out the difference in IQ between men and women um, because men have traditionally had greater access to um, socioeconomic stability and education in countries where women have equal access to education that usually evens out. Um, and the only, when I looked this up, uh, the only source I could find to substantiate what they were talking about was an article from Breitbart. So that was problematic. Then uh, they call on women who believe that biblical women or stay-at-home moms are weak to check their feminist privilege and cultural bias. Absolutely agree with that. Um, that the women in the Bible, there are definitely strong women in the Bible. And I know from personal experience that staying at home is no joke. Um, and so I, I agree that when we look at stay-at-home moms through some kind of cultural lens that says women can only find their work worth in certain things, um, that that is problematic. And but the whole, and, you know, that that's part of the reason why I am a feminist is because too often in our culture, I think we devalue the things that women do, and um, they aren't seen as, as having equal status as the things that men do. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the degree to which mainstream feminism says that the work of a stay-at-home mother is less or is not work, that is wrong. Like, that should not, right. that should not be the case. I, um, and I don't want to, like, I don't want to make the, I can't be prejudiced against these women because I have stay-at-home mom friends argument. Because, you know, right. obviously I have internalized that prejudice. But also, I have worked very hard particularly in the formulation of this podcast to work around the schedules of my panel and to give them maternity leave when they need it and to make sure that they feel like their family is valued and to record sometimes after everyone's kids have gone to bed. Like, this is work that I am trying to do so that I can counter the mainstream feminist impulse that says that the work that you are doing is not valuable. Right. And that's one of the things I appreciate about this podcast, you know, is the um, attention to making sure that there are women on the panel who are working moms and who aren't moms and who are uh, work at home moms. And um, that the panel also includes women from a, both a complementarian and egalitarian perspective, um, because I think it does model wh what I want to see more of in public discourse is people coming together across difference. Um, and I, you know, I really value the the tagline that you say every week, because that, that's helped me so many times when I feel so frustrated with both feminists and Christians at times to say, 
and essentials unity and not essentials liberty. Um, so I think, you know, there is definitely some common ground um, in all of the episodes, things that I agree with, um, but I think the divisive uh, nature of their approach to the discussion makes um, is not very productive. Uh, that I think that there's a lot that we can do um, as Christians in the feminist movement to be salt and light. And uh, I, I want to, I do want to read a quote from Sarah Bessie. She says, there are things Christians do that I find wrong and embarrassing and unholy and counter to the gospel. And there are things feminists do that I find wrong and embarrassing and unholy and counter to the cause. But here I am, I'm a Christian and I'm a feminist. Feminist. I'm not fully represented by what those labels mean. They're imperfect. And I know that the stereotypes of those labels cannot sum up the vast majority of the people I know who live within them. Um, so I think if those of us who are Christians remove ourselves from spaces such as feminist spaces, or those of us who are feminists remove ourselves from spaces such as churches, then our society continues to become very polarized. Um, I don't agree with all things that feminists stand for, um, but because of my understanding of scripture and my pro-life ethic, ethic, I believe that I have to be concerned with the welfare and flourishing of women. Um, and I would love to have an opportunity to sit down and have coffee with Sarah and Joy, um, summer and joy um i like you said they're kind of fun to listen to and i liked their dynamic with one another um i feel like we could be friends as long as we never ever talked about politics or feminism right and if i could you know add anything i would just say that when i call myself a christian feminist what i want to be saying is i think that the the church that i'm a part of the 21st century american church, 21st century American Christendom, could stand to be as feminist as Jesus was, and as feminist as the the New Testament is. You know, Ooh, that, preach. that more, that, that it is, there's room for us to hold women in as high an esteem as the early church did in many cases, that they can be integral parts of ministry, that they can be worthy of being loved and served and sacrificed for, uh, that they uh, have the opportunity to be prophets and dreamers, and that they can do you know great things, and that if we don't believe that about them, then we are cutting off major conduit of God's work and his love and you know the the sort of inside joke about churches is if you if you really want it done you ask the pastor's wife or you ask you know the women's and I, I don't I don't think I've been to a church that didn't that didn't have women as sort of a backbone getting things done behind the scenes and taking very little to no credit so that's one of the reasons why I believe that uh, feminism well applied and well constructed and well conceived is a is a great thing for any Christian to be. Wow, I think that might be a good place to move on to passing on. I, I don't want to follow that. <laughs> that was that was great. All right, wow. So Blake, uh, I guess yeah. Do you want to go ahead and share what you would like sure. to pass on? Yeah, I happen to be reading uh, a book that kind of interfaces well with what we've been talking about. It's called The Fidelity of Betrayal by Peter Rollins. And one of the issues I took with these four uh, podcast episodes was this very sort of um, word for word, uh, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, interpretation of roles and of duties and responsibilities for Christians. And uh, this book is is really good for re-examining some of the stories and constructions in the Bible uh, and asking us, uh, are we really supposed to take everything at face value or just at face value? And uh are we ever really done reading and interpreting the truth claims and the commands of the Bible and its stories, which these days, you know, with new very with concepts themselves of, of right and wrong uh, and every other category coming into existence? I think that's something that we really need to contend with. Great. Thanks, Victoria. Um, I'm going to cheat a little bit and recommend the book that I mentioned earlier, uh, Kristen Cobbs Dumez's 
biography of Catherine Bushnell. Uh, again, the title is A New Gospel for Women, Catherine Bushnell, and the Challenge of Christian Feminism. And um, what I love about this book, and will eventually discuss with Kristen when I um, interview her for profiles, is its, um, its history is really, really solid. Um, cited well and complex. Um, the book is challenging to someone who identifies as a Christian feminist because it pushes you not to just kind of collect Christian feminists throughout history and then expect them to live up to the uh, political and social norms of your time period. Um, it says, you know, understand that there were complex Christian feminists in the past, but don't expect their Christian feminism to look like yours because their time period didn't look like yours. Um, so I, I really appreciate um, the, the way the book is, is really well researched and also pushes me to examine um, how my Christian feminism looks in comparison to Catherine Bushnell's, who was just a really fabulous, super tough, smart woman that you should all read about. That sounds great. And I'm going to pass on, uh, I was just at a conference for English teachers this past weekend, and at one of our general sessions, they played this video. Um, you can find it on YouTube or if you, uh, or if you Google Freedom for Girls. And it's a, a video of girls from a all over the world um, lip syncing to Beyonce's Freedom. And it also has a lot of statistics related to um, some global go goals for sustainable development from the UN um, about um, working toward equality in education and the ending of um, violence against women and uh, different goals that they're trying to reach by 2030. Uh, but I find the video to be um, just really moving and uh, the choreography is also excellent. Um, but uh, I just think it's a really powerful video and I think that um, it gets at this idea that there are things that we as um, Christians and, and as feminists uh, can all agree on that we need to work toward ending and toward allowing for greater equality for women and valuing and respecting of women. So I hope that you guys check that out. All right. So thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcasts at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Blake Miller, I'm Kimberly Feldman. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss Christian Feminist Youth Ministry. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in All Things Love. <laughs>